Hello, everybody, and welcome to Poems for People Who Hate Poetry. And today, I hope that I have you not hating William Blake as we go through one of his more, um, for a progressive, as progressive and lefty as William Blake was, and, you know, he was one of the early romanticists, and he was this guy who was lauding against how horrible the London streets were and how it was, you know, an industrial revolution was destroying everything and yada, yada, yada. He really, in this poem that we're going to read um, called London, he really goes after and, you know, makes you see uh, the dirtier and nastier side of London. Now, this is a real, you know, this is one of the things um, Jordan Peterson, the psychologist and very controversial figure today, talks about, about you know, someone with what's called a high openness and the big five personality traits, that you can actually identify someone's likely political leanings based on a personality trait. So if they act a certain way, or if they have a certain personality trait, they may, are more likely to be uh, a lefty, for instance. So if you're very high in openness, you're more likely to be lefty. That's not a hundred percent, you know, and it's, uh, but it's true. Like I'm actually very high when I did it, I was like 97th percentile with high. Um, and I, but I don't consider myself left or right. So I, I put myself way in a weird position, but the point is that you can, you know, with pretty good accuracy, I think, um, according to, to Peterson have that. Now, the point is that when we're going in to talk about these, um, romantics, you know, he is a romantic poet, William Blake. We need to think about the time that they're writing in and, you know, what they're, they're trying to convey to the people who are reading at that time and to some degree for all time. So I wanted to actually read a, um, the introduction to Les Miserables by Victor Hugo. I think I'm saying that correctly. My grandmother's French and she would always correct me when I told her the name of this. I think that's correct. Um, okay, so let's see if I can find. So I think Victor Hugo is one of the arch um, romanticists. And he was definitely, you know, someone who was a progressive. And I think a lot of these romantics wanted to fix society to some degree. They wanted to make things better in society. And they, um, you know, and they are always defined by their high emotions. You know, they, they put whims and emotions above reason and rationality. Um, now, I think that they definitely did do that, but I think, you know, there's, there's a really good argument to be made as to why I think their um, art of whether it's poetry or especially in drama like Les Miserables and, and Victor Hugo and, and Schiller and many of these romantics, why they were actually some of the most rational and um, superior pieces of artwork in and of itself, in the history of the world. to some I mean, they had an amazing art, not just from a craft standpoint, but, you know, for Victor Hugo, for instance, I think he's one of the great dramatists of all times. So here, but they were, but they, they were progressives. And this is going to be very relevant for the poem London by William Blake. So you can kind of get an idea of his agenda because he had a little bit of an agenda. Um, you know, he, he was an artist who tried to create something for people, but he was, Definitely a, a lefty, you know, in our terms that you could say lefty progressive. He wanted to stop the Industrial Revolution. He didn't he wanted to stop capitalism and so on. We'll talk about that. But here's Victor Hugo 
in uh, the introduction, very famous introduction. So long as there shall exist, by reason of law and custom, a social condemnation which, in the face of civilization, artificially creates hells on earth and complicates a destiny that is divine with human fatality. So long as the three problems of the age, the degradation of man by poverty, the ruin of woman by starvation, and the dwarfing of childhood by physical and spiritual night are not solved. So long as in certain regions, social asphyxia shall be possible. In other words, and from a yet more extended point of view, so long as ignorance and misery remain on earth, books like this cannot be useless. I think, you know, whatever your, you know, uh, political leanings are, one of the, we shouldn't forget that, you know, even if you're very conservative, that there is a value to the viewpoints of progressives and people on the left who want, who see pain and misery and, you know, they see um, prostitution destroying the lives of women or they see, you know, children left destitute, you know, on the streets or, you know, put into child uh, labor camps or something. And, you know, in the, the poem that we're about to read, you're going to see a reference to chimney sweepers. So even though reality is that uh, capitalism eliminated child labor, none of that matters because the reality is as an artist, these artists saw these injustices and, you know, as an artist, they expressed it in a certain way, either in a poem, a painting, a, you know, epic novel like Les Miserables. This is actually part one. There's two parts. So this thing is a, it is the same size of two bucks. And, you know, so it's a big, it's a big boy. Um, and, and so they had a certain agenda, although it was an emotional reaction that they saw, that they were reacting to, you know, the, the limits of the imagination that they felt there was like this encroaching on their imagination. And instead of binding themselves in, these romanticists burst out with these amazing, epic, you know, dramatic scenes. And, you know, with uh, Victor Hugo, for instance, he, with those three, three uh, problems of the age, you get uh, people like Gwynplaine from, the the novel the man who laughs which is an amazing novel where you get um this idea of the dwarfing of the child and that's the idea that's the idea of the dwarfing of spiritual and you know physical dwarfing of the child and he talks about the comprachicos which is if you want to know what that is you got to read it uh he you know victor hugo claims that that's a historical reality i don't i can't believe that that was a historical truth uh what happened to those children Les Miserables, of course, everyone knows that. If you know the musical, Hugh Jackman was the last, uh, was the, the big um, Jean Valjean. And, you know, in that story, you get a lot of this degradation. You get Gavroche, which was the, the street urchin, and you get uh, Fantine and Cosette. And Fantine, of course, is a very dramatic uh, story that happens with Fantine, if you know, not just from the musical. The musical only touches on it. She's the one who sings I Dream a Dream. That that kind of gives you a little bit of the emotion of the character of Fantine. But when you see the entire story of this man who, you know, 
takes her away when she's a teenager and tells her that he's going to love her and take care of her and then leaves her destitute and starving with a child where she has to really work hard. And then she's, you know, society kicks her out even more. And that's kind of the message that Victor Hugo is trying to, to portray in this, in this play or in this uh, novel. And of course you have uh, Notre Dame de Paris with Claude Fro- Frollo and, and the constraints of an over powerful church and but also the the uh, not just the church but the emotional constraints of dogma so all these romanticists were trying to throw off the shackles of what happened before them whether this is correct ideologically or incorrect doesn't matter but what we get from this is a deeply passionate you know um portrayal of humans and the struggles that humans have to go through and the suffering they have to endure in order to come to a better place. So, and, and of course, all of these um, poets and authors and, and novelists and playwrights were all very mixed. Like there wasn't, I don't think there were, there were too many pure romanticists, maybe a little bit in Germany, um, but not so much in, uh, but I think Victor Hugo's very mixed. I think you know, he has very rational plot oriented novels. And he, even though he definitely rails against, you know, capitalism, what makes an artist, especially a great novelist and and poet, what makes like a great novelist so valuable is if they're truly great, is their ability to empathize even with the people they disagree with. So when, when Victor Hugo is creating, um, characters that he definitely disagrees with whether they're you know evil capitalists or whether they're evil um what can we say like like you know even javert who who represents society there's still you know a, a semblance of humanity and he's doing his duty and you can kind of you can respect javert as this person who tr- is just trying to do what he believes is correct he just you know cannot contend with what he's doing is destroying um, you know, the lives of all these people. He's destroying Javert and Cosette and Fantine. And, you know, he's basically, and, and that is a representation of a broader issue in society. Okay, so enough on the prelude. I wanted to give you a, just a little bit of a view or an idea of um, romanticism, just some little inkling of what these guys were going after when we go into the poem London by William Blake. Now, Real quick, before I read it, I'm just going to give you a couple very o- b- brief overviews of the history of this time. Uh, you d- For this poem, you don't, like for any great poem, you don't have to have the history well known. But especially a poem like this, I think it does help a little bit to have at least a teeny bit of background. So in 1789, if you, you may know, was the French Revolution. Now, the French Revolution essentially upturned the um, the monarchy at that time, and you get Robespierre, and you get eventually this will come later, but you get eventually Napoleon, who is a uh, you know comes from the people. He's he's explicitly not a a king. He's explicitly not of the lineage of monarchs and these oppressive despots, which everyone was fighting against. Of course, this happened several years after the uh, American Revolution who threw off the shackles of King George and they were able to do that. And so that was, I think, served as a little bit of an inspiration of like, if these primitive Americans can do it, why can't we do it in Europe? So anyway, you get this overturning of the monarchy in, in France. Now imagine you're in Europe 
right? Your, your monarchs in other places in Europe, whether it's in Russia, whether it's in England. Well, you might start to freak out a little bit because especially in 1793, people in France started, you know, things started to get really bloody very quickly, actually. And they started cutting off heads. You know, they, they started killing the kings and the princes and anybody they can get at that was of uh, monarch bloodline, right? So if you're in England and you're a monarch, you might start to freak out if you saw any inkling of that. And, you know, William Blake w- did believe that and, and, you know, did like the overtreading in the 1789 uh, French Revolution. He was a radical, William Blake. Now, the, the point I'm making here is that when he writes this poem, it's part of William Blake's most famous poetry, which we've been reading a lot, is Songs of Innocence and Songs of Experience, showing the two contrary states of human nature. And when you read Poems of Innocence, which are great little poems, they're very, there's a depth to them that is... Um, there's a sim- they look simple on the surface, but there's a depth to them that you know is worth un you know digging out that the depth that they have. It's very interesting stories, uh, very interesting poems. I really recommend them. I've read a couple already, but the um, though those and and the songs of experience to some degree are kind of pitched to the public as you know children's poems. And part of what I think uh, Blake is trying to do is get past some of the bad things that are happening in London or in England. So because of this despotic overturning or the monarchical overturning in 1789, you get in England a cracking down on the freedom of press. And then, of course, expanding, you know, and then, of course, if you're Blake and you're starting to see and hear about all these horrible things, you know, this industrialist took over this farm to put a wind to put a mill up of some sort. And um, in the New Jerusalem by William Blake, he calls these the dark satanic mills that are, you know, just gobbling up the green pastures of, of England. And eventually we're just gonna be all steel and nothing but uh, you know, nothing but steel, which has been a, a fear of the romanticists and the anti-industrialist since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. And it's still, of course, a a fear today. We just, uh, we call it global warming today. Okay, so here is, I'm going to read London by William Blake, and then we'll go do a quick little, you know, uh, line by line of it and uh, see what you think. Okay, London by William Blake. I wander through each chartered street near where the chartered Thames does flow and mark in every face I meet marks of weakness, marks of woe. In every cry of every man, in every infant's cry of fear, in every voice, in every ban, the mind-forged manacles I hear. How the chimney sweepers, chimney sweepers cry, and every blackening church appalls, and the hapless soldier's sigh runs in blood, down palace walls. But most through midnight streets I hear how the youthful harlots curse, blasts the newborn infant's tear, t- tear and blights with plagues the marriage hearse. So you're, you're uh, I hope, seeing some of the, 
vices or the, the errors, the, the terrors and the underbelly that he's trying to show in London. And you get this with progressives today who you know, will never focus on the good stuff. They're always focusing on all the horrible things. You know, uh, there was a book recently released that I have not read, but I've heard a lot of people talking about and reviewing, uh, including Iran Brook on the Iran Brook Show, which is um, Enlightenment Now, and it's by Steven Pinker. And it's basically about how things are actually way better in, um, than they've ever been throughout the history of the world. Way better. Like even school shootings. Like we think of, when we think of school shootings, we probably imagine it's the end of the world and everybody's dying. But when you think, you know, if you if you relate it to uh, school shootings over the past, you know, 100 years or so, it's actually been going down overall. Crime's been going down. Um, death in general has been going down. Uh, poverty has been going down worldwide, not just in America, but worldwide been going down dramatically. And we don't really talk about that. Now, progressives in general, and I think this is just a cognitive bias and it's, you know, whether you want to call it like Jordan Peterson does with the, um, you know, personality trait that they're going to be more leftist. You know, I think there's a mixture of things, but the point of the, the fact of the matter is that there tends to be a focus on these negatives, you know, that there's these bad things, you know, and one bad thing that was happening in London at this time was, you know, when you think about smoke and um, pollution, air pollution, and people are complaining about air pollution in 2018 America sometimes. I was uh, at, when I was in college, I think it was like 2009 or 10, I remember taking a biology class. I sat next to this young lady and she's, you know, talked about how horrible the, um, you know, the little bit of, there's like a, I don't remember what it was called. It was like a little dust of um, pollution, air pollution that you could actually see in Denver. And, you know, she was right. It wasn't the nicest thing to experience, but that little, you know, dust was nothing compared to what I remember when we, um, you know, I'm from Fremont, California. It's Northern California. When my parents would always go visit family in LA. And when you went there in the like late eighties, early nineties, that was fog. I remember like they would always roll up the windows like that. There was a lot of fog at that time. That was nothing compared to the fog that London experienced at this time, because this is the beginning of the industrial revolution before any kind of safety measures are in place, before they even have the techno technological know-how to eliminate those kind of safety measures. So there is a legitimate problem that, you know, uh, Blake is kind of railing and fearing at this point. So when he says, so let's go through this a little bit. I wander through each chartered street near where the chartered Thames does flow. Now, he's throwing this word chartered in your face. So there's something to the word chartered. When a poet like Blake repeats something, you got to take notice. So chartered is a um, you know is a word that can mean a couple of things. It can mean like a, a charter, a map charter. It can mean like a government charter. You know, a legal document is kind of one of the definitions. So I think what he's trying to, to describe here with the chartered street and chartered is even though Thames is a is a river, like it's natural. You know, I think it's a natural river. I help, I, I'm sorry if I don't I got that wrong, but I think it's a natural river. But he's trying to argue that it's that this whole nature is being created by the government, which is kind of, you know, it, I wander through each chartered street. So it's like, you know, you get your government documents and it's, you can think of this, you know, um, 
Marxist terror, terror of these, you know, people just walking down the street and slave to their government masters. And they're getting, you know, it's like a dystopian novel that he's kind of setting up here near the chartered Thames does flow. So he's by this street that's government owned, government created, government everything. And Mark and every face I meet marks of uh, weakness, marks of woe. So this is, when you think about it, it's a little bit of a terror that this this uh, poet is seeing in people's eyes. And it's a terror from the mind of the poet. So he's saying, uh, and Mar- so he's wandering through these streets and he's marking in every face. So he's either creating the mark on people's faces or he's recognizing that there's a mark on people's faces. And think of like an actual mark people's faces now what kind of mark so so think of like a horror movie this is how i look at it a horror movie that you walk through and you have some curse put on you where every once in a while you'll see like a demon in someone's face right like just imagine people walking you have a normal kirk face and then all of a sudden you have this ugly face that kind of transforms you could picture like a movie um you know special effects putting on like a mask or or, uh, you know some kind of screaming scary ghost demon that's kind of how I think he's he's talking about this. And Mark in every face I meet, marks of weakness, marks of woe. Now, by the way, I am, you know, as I'm analyzing this, in your first read-through, you would not get what I just said. What I just said about the, the terror, the demon, comes from an overall view of the poem. And I say this all the time. It's so important to get one or two or even three or four readings and thinking about the poem yourself before you go through and really try to analyze it a little bit, because the a good poem is about the whole, W-H-O-L-E. It's about everything. It's all one piece. Okay, in every cry of every man, in every infant's cry of fear, in every voice, in every ban, the mind-forged manacles I hear. So now, you know, think about those, um, the, the three problems of the age that Victor Hugo talked about. So we had the degradation of man um, by poverty, the ruin of women by starvation, and the dwarfing of childhood by physical and spiritual night. So we're going to see all of that. So here we have in every cry of every man. So why are men crying? Well, maybe it has something to do with the chartered things and the fact that everything's chartered and there's a kind of alienation in their soul, right? Like they are alienated from their natural pastoral you know, uh, playing in the jungle or in the the woods with some nymphs. Like that life, that world is gone. And every cry of every man and every infant's cry of fear and every voice and every band, the mind-forged manacles I hear. Now that is a hell of a line. I mean, that is a great image. Mind-forged manacles. So manacles are, you know, what you put on your, um, they're, they're handcuffs essentially, except they're the handcuffs that you would, um, that the the oh man what is the name I forgot the name of the police in uh, England but anyway so the name that the the police the guards of the the Europe of that time that they would put they would put you in manacles and then you're going to jail right but he's saying it's not just the manacles like literal manacles he's checking that they're uh, mind forge manacles they're metaphorical manacle manacles and the this is what's causing 
so to some degree, there's an arbitrariness to it or, or fakeness to the cries of man and the infant's cry. Like it doesn't have to happen. It's optional. You can throw off these manacles and go out to the pasture is kind of what I see as one of his messages. Um, and But yet we live in this society and we, you know, by living in this society, we have um, given up the freedom of our souls. And that's uh, what I think he's trying to say there. So how the chimney sweepers cry, every blackening church appalls, and the hapless soldier's sighs, sigh runs in blood down palace halls, walls. So chimney sweepers were a real thing where young children were put up into chimneys because they were small and they could sweep. Now, um, you know, most people who have studied a little bit of the history of the industrial, industrial revolution understand that one, this was real, and two, that it was there was actually capitalism that eventually ended. You know, as people became wealthier, they stopped sending their kids and making them their kids do this. Um, but nevertheless, this was a a terrible, you know, horrible thing to see to see a child stuck into you know a coffin like tube that they had to clean and you know he's talking about you know clean with a brush and you get dust in your face i mean imagine just being in that this little enclosed tomb as a child and then you have to sweep the the soot out of it be a chimney sweeper because they didn't have any mechanized things that could do that you know kids would must have died of lung cancer and lots of horrible things so it it was not a good thing that that happened even for a short while so we have to remember that even though, you know, if you're on the right politically or if you believe in those, whatever you want to, you know, libertarianism or you're capitalist, whatever objectivist, we have to remember that for the individual child that had to do that during that transitionary period, that is not a good thing. This is not a, a happy thing. And, you know, I think William Blake is trying to express that. And, you know, he's also kind of implying that the church did not help here. Because the chimney sweeper cry, every blackening church appalls. So it seems like the, the church isn't really doing its job and it's actually helping or making the kids do this. And then, of course, the soldier sighs uh, run in blood down palace walls. You know, I think the, the hapless soldiers, I think it's like a soldier that doesn't know any better, doesn't know what he's doing, he's just kind of, or doesn't know why he's doing something and just kind of you know, helps with run down the the blood running down uh, palace walls. That may be a reflection on, you know, the killing of so many people, both monarch and non-monarch in France at that time. But most through midnight streets, I hear how the youthful harlot's curse blasts the newborn infant's tear and blights with plagues the marriage hearse. So we're getting this idea here of in this last stanza um, that the thing that he sees the most is the feminine side, the female side of all these harlots, these prostitutes is, you know, what a harlot would be, how the youthful harlot. So they're young harlots, they're young prostitutes, which basically implies, especially at this time, that their life was essentially over in a large degree. Like they weren't able, they were not going to marry a good man and settle down and have a family once you you know are marked as a prostitute marks of fear marks of uh, weakness marks of woe once that happens to you you know for the most part it's a, it's a mark that you cannot remove ever it's a curse 
and the harlot's curse, and then blast the newborn infant's tear. So now, of course, what you get is a whole, you know, um, burst of new children that are being born. And then, what do people do with those children? Well, they they just throw them, they you know, throw them out to the the society to raise on their own, basically. I mean, this is the story of Gavroch in Les Miserables is, you know, he, I don't know if he, I don't remember if he's born from a prostitute, but the idea is that a lot of these young children that are running around in uh, France and the same thing in, in London, they're the byproduct of the loss of uh, treating women properly. And they're also the, the confluence is, you know, so since we don't have the pastoral farmland uh, ethic anymore, we all cram together in London. Well, that gives a rise of prostitution, which gives a rise of all these kids. And again, this is a real problem. It's it's a problem today too. I mean, there these are real things that need to be at least considered, even if you're a big advocate of capitalism and so on, which I am. Um, and blights with plagues the marriage hearse. So the I think the implication there is that so many men are cheating on their wives, and which implies a not only possibly bringing in disease into the house but also bringing you know destroying the marriage the sanctity of the marriage and not cheating and things of that nature okay so that's london by william blake i uh you know i hope you enjoyed that i really recommend reading it i recommend reading songs of innocence and songs of experience by william blake and really trying to get a hold of these romanticists. I think there's a lot that they can teach us about how to see the world. Thank you.